Morning, everybody. <clears throat> wow. Well, let me be the first, and I am pretty confident I'm the first to wish you all a very happy new year. <laughs> Come on. All right. It is the first Sunday of the new year. This is, uh, this is what the church confesses. This is what the church around the world today is celebrating, the beginning of a brand new year. Why? It's because we tell time differently in the church than the rest of the culture does. This is how big Jesus is to the church. This is how important Jesus is, that we actually tell time differently because of him. It's the impact he's made. And the church year begins this Sunday. And we start telling the story of Jesus and the life of Jesus and then the life of the church and and what God has been doing throughout history. But here's the cool thing about the way the year is organized. The church year doesn't begin with the birth of Jesus. It doesn't begin on Christmas with the incarnation. It actually begins with expectation. It begins with these four weeks of Advent leading up to the birth of Jesus in the world. These, these four weeks of Advent are weeks of longing. They're weeks of expectation. They're weeks of hope where we, like, we tap into these like, deep, deep longings inside of us for Christ to be made real in our lives. I mean, are, are you aware of the places in your life where you need Jesus? Like where you need God's presence to be real, to fix things, to, to make broken things whole again. Um, th- that's what these four weeks are. We, we start by singing these songs that talk about, like, Oh Holy Night, long lay the world in sin and error pining. Right? I mean, the, the, the reality of the story, of the Bible story, is a story of longing, of hope. But what are we hoping for? Like if you were going to name, okay, what is, what am I hoping for? What is the deep thing inside of me that I need from God? And what is our broken world hoping for? How would you name that? Well, the way the Bible names it, one of the ways is this word shalom. Shalom. I'll take a look and uh, it'll be on the screen. Psalm 85, verses, uh, verse 8. It says, I will listen to what the, God the Lord says. He promises peace. And that word peace is shalom to his people and to his faithful servants. Any of you have Jewish friends, like friends who are Jewish? Have you ever called them on the phone and they answer the phone by saying shalom? It's like a Jewish greeting. You can practice this for Advent if you want to. Like anytime somebody calls shalom, um, you confuse people a little bit. It means peace, right? That's how it's usually translated in our Bibles, but the texture is so much richer than just peace. It's not just the absence of conflict. Shalom, another way of thinking about it, is oneness. It's wholeness. It's when everything is as it should be. That's what the Bible says the deep longings inside of us, the deep longings of our world are fulfilled with the bringing, God bringing shalom, bringing peace into our lives and into the world. Um, so we'll think about shalom as oneness. Um, and the picture of shalom, this holistic, 360-degree, full-orbed view of oneness, it, we can think about it like this, oneness with God. Like we are most at peace when we are at one with God. When we can look God in the eye, so to speak, and know that there's, there's, there's no tension between us. That God has made everything right. And there's no reason for us to hide from God. There's no reason for us to not sort of just stand in God's presence fully alive. 
That's what shalom is. It's oneness with God. It's oneness with ourselves. That when we're at peace with God, we can actually look ourselves in the eye and know that we're made in God's image and we're okay. We can, we can look ourselves in the, in, in sort of in the mirror and we can know that, you know what? Um, I don't need other people's approval. I don't need to try to make myself different. I don't need to try to work to win. I don't need to have those awards or those accolades or what other people say about me because I am who God has made me to be and I'm okay as I am. Shalom is to be at one with ourselves because we're at one with God and to be at one with others. Shalom is there when, when, um, when we can look other people in the eye. Our, our family, our friends, our neighbors, other nations, other people groups around the world. And we can look at them in the eye and say, it's okay. It's, we're one. There's nothing between us. There's no unpaid debt between us. This is why Jesus in the Lord's Prayer, he says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Because sometimes, how many of you know in relationships, we have unpaid debts, right? We, you, you meet somebody and you're like, they owe me. Or you feel, I owe them something. And shalom is, well, this oneness is when we can look each other in the eye and we can know we're okay. We're at peace. And, and shalom is actually extended to the world, God's good world, God's good creation. It's when we can look creation in the eye and know that it's being cared for. Um, as we were given the task to do, to be stewards, trustees of God's creation. So we look around the world and we know that we are, we are doing what we have been called to do to take care of this world. That is a picture of oneness, of shalom. And we, this, is, uh, this is what the Bible says. This, this is where our longings are lodged. This is what we all hope for. This is how we were made to live in this kind of oneness with God, self, others, and all creation. So I want to take this morning, the rest of this morning, the sermon time, and just, I want to tell the big story, the big story of the Bible, uh, of the Old Testament, because it is a story of longing for shalom, for oneness. If you have your outline uh, in your bulletin, you pull that out, you can see kind of the steps we're going to be moving through. Uh, I'm pretty confident we're not going to hit all of them. And so this is a good tool for you. You can jot down some notes if you want to go back to it throughout the week. Or you can just look up these scriptures on your own, on your own quiet times, or with your family, your missional community, and, and, and just explore these things a little bit further. But I want to tell the big story of the Bible through the lens of this oneness of shalom. So let's start all the way in the beginning, Genesis chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. It's a beautiful story of God creating things the way they were always meant to be. So Genesis 1, verse 26 says this, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the livestock and the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. In the image of God, he created them. The word mankind here, maybe in your Bible it's humankind, is actually the word the Adam. If you're reading it in Hebrew, you would say like, so God created the Adam, humanity, mankind. And he created him in his own icon, his own image, his own likeness. So humanity is created in the icon of God, created like with this amazing capacity to rule over, to steward God's good world, to take this love that we receive from God and to just express it to the rest of God's good creation. God makes the Adam in his own icon. Now, 
ask the question, what are human beings? Like, what are you? And, and this series is kind of asking, how much are you worth? Like, how much is a human being worth? If you're going to ask biblically, what is a human being, you would get kind of two answers. And the first one is not much. You're dust, right? You are, you're made from the dirt. The word, the Adam, is actually a derivative of the word for dirt. Adama is dirt, and Adam is human being. Like, so we are a human from the humus. If that isn't grounding, I don't know what is, right? So what are we? Sometimes when we get a little too big for our britches, we need to remember that we're pretty dusty, right? We're just like, we're frail. And, and sometimes we feel this, like our bodies, you know, we start to feel that we're just dust. Um, and, and so like on one hand, what is a human being and, and what's a body worth? I, I actually looked up, there was a study that was done a couple of years ago that says if you took all, a human body and you broke it down, this is really morbid, sorry for this, you broke it down into all of its most basic elements. So we're not talking organs, things like that, the most basic elements. And then you sold those elements, how much would you get for those elements? And this was like 2012, the going rate for the elements mating, making up a human body. Any guesses? $160. Just a side note, potassium was the most expensive, so the more bananas you eat, the more valuable you become. So, um, so on one hand, what is a human being? We're, we're dust, we're dirt, we're sort of, this is what uh, um, um, Madeline LaIngle says, remember that the root word for humble and human is the same, it's humus, it's earth. We are dust. We are created. It is God who made us and not we ourselves. But, she says, we were made to be co-creators with God. See, the story doesn't end with us being dust. It, it actually continues on. In, in, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed the Adam, the man, from the dust of the ground and breathed into the, his nostrils the breath of life, and the Adam became a living soul. A living soul. What is a human being? A human being is just, is just dirt, but it's made alive with this soul, something of God that has been put inside of us. And this soul that God has put inside of us cannot be measured, cannot be valued. A number cannot be put on it. Human beings have intrinsic value, and we know this, and we feel it deep inside of our bones, right? That people are valuable. Every person is valuable. Um, if I was driving in this morning, um, this example works a lot better if there was a lot of water in the Arkansas River, but I drive across the bridge every, every Sunday to come to South Hutch, and if I was driving across the bridge today, and it also works when it's warmer, but hey, it's supposed to be like 60-some degrees today. Um, if there was a child who was struggling to stay afloat in the river, and there were some people around, like on the shore, but like I looked and I saw there was a child in the middle of the river, and I saw them, and I kept driving. Why? Because I've got important stuff to do today. I've got to preach a sermon. What would you think of me? I would hope you would think less of me. Right? Why? Because that child's life is worth far more than anything I would do today, right? I mean, that saving another human being's life is worth far more than anything else we could do. This is why first responders rush into dangerous situations. This is why uh, firefighters rush into burning houses to save people they don't know, to sacrifice their own lives, to save a human being. Why? Because they have value. This is why you read stories of, of one man in Vegas who didn't value human life, 
and started taking human life, but the vast majority of people use their own bodies to shelter others. And, and to, I, I read story after story this week of, of people who were, uh, one woman who dove under a table in the Vegas uh, shooting a, a few weeks ago, and, and all of a sudden she realized in the chaos that there was a man who was sheltering her with his own body, and he himself had been shot, and he just whispers in her ear, I, I, I got you. You're going to be okay. Story after story like this, it is baked in to us as human beings that people are valuable valuable. Why? Because they're made in God's icon, in God's image, and God has put a soul in us. Last night, um, our family, what we do for Christmas is we, uh, we just get the kids around, and we read uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible. We just tell the story, um, and, and this is a great practice. If you have kids, grandkids, if you started two days ago and read one story a day, you would get to the birth of Jesus on Christmas Day, so there's still time to catch up. Right? Uh, so last night we're sitting there, and uh, our seven-year-old, Eden, she's, uh, she's reading to the family. We're spread out on Grayson's bed, and she's reading the story of creation, and she says, and God looked at these people who he had made and said, you look like me. You're the most beautiful thing I've ever made. And God loved them with all his heart, and they were lovely because he loved them. Why are human beings lovely? Because we are loved. We are loved by our creator. This is what a human being is. Psalm 8 says it this way. You made them, humans, a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor. You made them the rulers over the works of your hands. And you put everything under their feet. We were made in the icon of God. But even in the creation story, there's a problem. There's a problem. And the first problem we see is that um, God looks at the Adam and says, it is not good for the Adam to be alone. Right? He will have no idea what to wear. Um, this is a huge problem. So, um, so God realizes, like, wait a second. God is love, right? We talked about this in 1 John. And God is this endless flow of love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In, in Genesis 1, it says, let us, Father, Son, Spirit, make human beings in our image. Like, we're made in the image of a triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And yet, there's only one, the Adam. Human beings are one in, in one person. And God says, this is a problem. The Adam doesn't have anybody to experience this oneness, mutual giving and receiving of love with. So, so what does God do? He splits the Adam. And so, come on. You know you liked it. <laughs> so he, this, is, this, is what, this is what God does. He, uh, in, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, it says, He makes the Adam fall asleep, and he creates a woman. It says, And she shall be called Isha, woman, for she was taken from the Ish. So the Adam is split into Ish and Isha, man and woman. Here's a little diagram uh, from a book called uh, The Blue Parakeet. Great book about how to read the Bible, next slide, by Scott McKnight. It says, um, we're created, God creates the Adam, and then splits the lonely, the Adam, into Ish and Isha. They're in communion together, this loving relationship, mutual companions. And then God brought them together to form one flesh, right? God is one. This is the confession of the Bible, that God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. If you were going to read um, Deuteronomy 6.4, this is, it's called the Shema in, in Hebrew. And if you, again, if you have Jewish friends, they will pray the Shema twice a day, morning and evening. And the Shema goes like this. It says, 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is, is one. Right? And so there is something about this unity between Ish and Isha, the man and the woman, this coming back together that reveals the oneness of how God created things to be. It reveals something of God. This is, this is a beautiful thing. This is how human beings were created to be in this partnership, this companionship, mutual relationships. And this reveals God to the world. We were created for oneness with God, with ourselves, with others, and with all creation. And when we receive God's life and his oneness, it gives life to everything else. But, this is the calling. But this is just the first two chapters of the Bible. And the next thousand pages or so are not stories of oneness. They're stories of otherness. They're stories of brokenness. These icons get cracked. Um, I, th- I mean, Chris Stapleton fans, the new song, I, I've seen my share of broken halos. You know the song? Um, I, I think it kind of is talking about the same thing. I've seen my share of broken icons. You know, human beings who sort of used to shine. That's a human story, right? It is, it's not oneness, it's otherness. Human beings choose sin. This is the story of Genesis 3. We choose, and what we think we're choosing is to be like God. What we think we're choosing is autonomy. What we think we're choosing is independence, but what we're really choosing is alienation. We're choosing to cut ourselves off from God, our source of life. And so all of a sudden, sin leads us to otherness with God. There's alienation, separation from God. There's alienation with ourselves. All of a sudden, now we see ourselves and we are, we're dripping with shame. Something's broken. I need to fix myself. I need to be better. I need to hide. Um, there's brokenness. There's otherness with others. That all of a sudden, now there's blame. We're blaming each other. We're, we're, we're competitive. We're trying to win. And it ultimately ends up leading to violence. There's otherness even with creation. Uh, creation itself is cursed because of human sin. Now the meaningful work we've been given to do turns into toil and people are called to, forced to leave the garden, this good arrangement, into a broken world. Now think about this for a second. This is the story of the Bible, right? And every other story we tell, every movie, every novel, is based on this. How many of you have ever taken an English class or any English majors? What are the types of narrative conflict that we introduce into stories to make a good story? It's man versus man, right? The story of conflict, like there's competition and conflict and you have to overcome man versus man, man versus self, right? We're in conflict with our own selves and so we have this war going on inside of us. Or man versus nature, like we're, we're sort of adversarial with, with nature. Every story we tell, this stuff again is baked into us. We tell it because it is the story. We feel this alienation from God deep in our bones, even if we don't recognize it as such. So we have this problem as human beings. We can't say anymore, behold, it is very good. Because this otherness, it leads to death, but the oneness of God, it leads to life. And the rest of the story, the rest of the Bible, is about God's desire to restore it. Everything, the rest of the scriptures, is about God's desire to put these broken pieces back together. This is God's project. 
That don't think that God is, is uninvolved in the affairs of human beings. Don't think that God is sort of far off out there somewhere just sort of like looking. The story the Bible tells is the story of a God who is actively present, who is intervening, who is there, who is working to bring oneness and shalom again to his world. Now, it would be so easy for us right here as we're sort of talking about this problem of otherness to jump ahead to Jesus. Jesus comes and makes everything better, right? And it would be awesome to do that, but that's not the story. We would be skipping the thousand pages between Genesis 3 and Luke chapter 2. The story goes on, and it's a story of God continuing to work to bring oneness out of otherness. And God, he chooses, in Genesis 12, he chooses a people. He chooses another Ish and Isha. He chooses Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah. Genesis chapter 12, this is God's plan for this one man, one woman, in the middle of a world of otherness. He says, the Lord said to Abram, go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God's plan is to just bring his oneness into Abraham and Sarah and into their family and then to spread that oneness to the ends of the earth to all people on the planet. God's plan to put everything back together is to create a covenant community where oneness with God, self, and others in creation is lived out and others see it and are attracted to it and it blesses the world. But the story doesn't go well, right? Because these people are broken. And so very soon, by the time we get to the end of the book of Genesis, we have the people who are enslaved to empire in Egypt. Uh, They're in slavery They were sort of captives in Egypt for 400 years. Now, think for a second about what is is slavery? What is Egypt? It's a picture of what it looks like when sin, when otherness gets ahead of steam. Because we're not talking about person-to-person conflict. We're talking about a whole system, a whole empire that is built on oppressing people, on turning people into objects, on not valuing other human beings, on even killing them because they're your property. Egypt is a picture of what it looks like when sin gets ahead of steam. And so God's people are oppressed in Egypt and they're slaves and they cry out to God and God hears them and God rescues them and God brings them, this whole group of people now, to himself. Not just Abraham and Sarah, but their whole family of descendants, over a million people most likely, brings them to the Mount Sinai in in the desert. And God makes this covenant with them. He says, I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people, and I want you to represent me in the world, but here's how you're going to have to do it. Just don't have any other gods before me. Worship me alone because I am your source of life. And if you do that, and if you treat each other like they're made in my image, you're going to fulfill my purpose in the world. You're going to bring oneness to the world. This is what God says to the people at Mount Sinai, this high calling to to step back into the truth of what they're always meant to be. And at Mount Sinai, what happens is God is made king. Oh, you can hit the next slide. God is made king at Mount Sinai. God is the one who's in charge of their provision and their protection and their direction and leadership. And it's this beautiful, loving arrangement. But there's a problem. Otherness just keeps expanding. They can't stay faithful to God. Uh, They can't kick out the idols. They can't stop their idolatry. They're they're just prone to worship other gods. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, they reject God. They flat out reject God as their king, 
right? They just say, God, we don't want you to do the job anymore. We want a human being so we can be like all the other nations because they're going to protect us. Uh, He's going to lead us into war, and we want the security of that. Uh, Next slide. And so, um, so they reject God as their king. And so they set up a human king, and this human king, God tells him, he's going to enslave you, he's going to take your children, he's going to oppress you, he's going to turn you into the new Egypt. And what happens? Within a couple of generations, it happens. You have David, who can't control himself, who uses his power as king to exploit Bathsheba, to turn her into property for his own gratification, to take a human being and to turn her into it, to use her. How many of you know we have a problem as a culture? Um, it seems like every day we turn on the news and there's another sort of Me Too story of, of women who have been abused, who've been assaulted. And, and we have to own this deep sense of otherness that, that for far too long we have taken human beings made in God's image and we have turned them into objects. And we need to repent of it as a culture, as individuals, we need to repent of it. And we need to invite God's healing to say, God, would you, would you help us to see ourselves as people made in God's image? And, and for men, that, that we would see the women around us as people created in God's image who have incredible value. And we would resist that othering power in the world. This is what David does. He uses his power to exploit Bathsheba, and then he kills her husband Uriah to cover it up. His son Solomon can't control himself either, and he accumulates wives and wealth, um, like property, and, and Solomon becomes the new pharaoh. He's exploiting others. He's enslaving people to build his kingdom. He's worshiping other gods, and God punishes him, and he says, because of your wickedness, I'm going to split the kingdom. This kingdom that was going to reveal God to the world is now torn in two. The otherness just keeps expanding. Finally, the story goes on. And in 587 B.C., God finally allows his people to be conquered. And he takes them from their land. He takes them from their temple. He takes them from their priests. He takes them from all of their religion. He takes it all away from them, and he sends them into Babylon in exile. Psalm 137 talks, it's this, this, this psalm of lament of God's people saying, this was our calling, but here we are. It says, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. See, in the Old Testament, otherness gets the last word. In the human story, failure is woven like a deep thread. Deep within the fabric of the story of Israel is the truth that they won't get the job done until the job is done for them. And Advent is a season to be aware of all of the ways that this is our story. Advent is a a season to be honest about all the places that we need God to intervene in our own lives. Before we can fully celebrate the coming of Christ, we have to be honest about are there there places? And and I want to invite you just to take a minute. um, Toward the bottom of your outline, there's some blank space under exile. Are there places where you are experiencing otherness with God right now? Like where, because of choices you've made, you have, you've thought you were choosing autonomy to do your own thing and you're actually alienating yourself from your source of life. And to just be honest about that. To say, God, I, I need you. I want to turn around. 
I need you in my life. Are there places where you're experiencing otherness inside yourself? That because you're cut off from God, you, you're trying to earn other people's approval. You're, you're judging your own value by what other people say about you. Or you're trying to accumulate possessions so that you can prove to yourself that you're, you're valuable, you're worth something. And will you just own that today? Are there places in your life where you're experiencing otherness with others, where you have undervalued other people? Or where other people have undervalued you? Where your actions have hurt others or you've been hurt by others? And would you just name it? Where there's brokenness in our families, in our relationships, our friendships. Would you just take a minute and just be honest with God about these places? Where are you longing for oneness this Advent season? See, the Old Testament ends in tragedy, but God has a plan to redeem everything. And so while God's people are sitting by the rivers of Babylon, lamenting and mourning all of the places where they've missed it, all of the places where otherness has won the day, God begins to speak a new word of hope. God calls to the prophets, and he begins to speak of a new word of hope of a new, the Adam, who will come and who will do the job for us. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that your heart service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make the path straight in the desert, a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up and every mountain shall be made low and the rough ground shall become level and the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah 52. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim shalom. who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people and has redeemed Jerusalem. Ezekiel 37, I will make a new covenant of shalom with them, and it will be an everlasting covenant. And I will establish them and increase their numbers, and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I, the Lord, make them holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. Zechariah 9, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on the colt, on the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will break the bow and will proclaim shalom to the nations. His Rule will extend from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. The true Adam is coming and has come, and he is God with us.